Welcome back to Vintage Stories. Uh, we got a good one today with Rod Eastope, but I'll get back to that in a second. I just wanted to remind everybody who's local here in Hawks Bay that we are amongst Falk. Now, for those of you that <coughs> don't live in Hawks Bay or live outside of New Zealand, and you think I just swore into the microphone, how dare I, uh, Falk is Food and Wine Coalition. And it's twice a year events we do here in Hawks Bay. They don't need my help promoting it, but there are a few tickets left for random events, including one uh, a bunch of us are doing this Saturday out uh, in Maracacaho. It should be quite a hoedown, uh, a few wineries, including East Hope Family Wine Growers uh, and Rod East Hope, who I am speaking with today on the podcast. Uh, so yeah, just go to the, <coughs> the Fox website. Uh, I mean, they got billboards, man. These people know what they're doing. There's awesome events. There's celebrity chefs. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And in two weeks, I'm doing uh, two lunch events with uh, Chris and Alex from Pippi Restaurant, one of the sort of cool local places here in Hawks Bay. Uh, they asked me to do it, and I was jumped at the opportunity because they're just so cool to work with, and they've got this awesome property uh, sort of south of Hastings. Um, yeah, it's like... Yeah, I think it's an old homestay, and we're going to talk about Alex's books. She's got a new book out called Pippi at Home. Her first Pippi cookbook just did tremendous. And this is, yeah, more homey recipes and things like that. And we're going to pair uh, wines with the food, and it's just going to be a little party down there. I think that one, uh, tickets are going, there's not as many tickets. Uh, whereas the super celebration coming up this Saturday uh, the 17th, you get that date right. Yeah, the 17th, there are some tickets left. There's buses, but it's probably, all I'm saying is a little more, uh, just pay attention to booking that one a little more because you got to get transportation out there. You don't have to, you could drive yourself, but there's going to be some drinking going on, so you probably don't want to be driving. Uh, so yeah, check those out online. And of course, check out decibelwines.com. We've got some new releases up there. And send us an email, decibeldispatch at gmail.com. I think I forgot to mention that last episode uh, with Yvonne, which I got a really good response to. So thanks for some people who reached out about that. Uh, but yeah, today we have Rod Easthope. Uh, Rod and I have only sort of in the last year or so become more acquainted probably because of this project that he's doing and he's sort of stretching his legs a bit and I've been out to his property it's amazing and I suggest you guys follow them on Instagram uh, rod.easthope on Instagram or easthope underscore wine growers and just check out this property it's awesome uh, not only is Rod on the precipice of you know a sort of new wine revolution here in Hawks Bay doing some interesting varietals some premium boutique wines, uh, but he's also literally on the precipice right on the edge of the old Naroa River, which if any of you have ever had some Gibble Gravels wines, including the Decibel Malbec, uh, I've usually wrote that on the back label. That's the river that formed the Gibble Gravels, shifted a couple hundred years ago again, and now, uh, yeah, sort of, you know, once again, as we always talk about with Hawks Bay, it's about uh, rivers, former riverbeds hillsides <clears throat> creating all these different meso and microclimates and rod's got a great spot down there so i suggest you check it out i suggest you contact them go try to set up a tasting 
It'll be an exclusive one if you do. He doesn't really have a tasting room, but they do, uh, if you make it that far down Maracacoa Road to his beautiful property, I'm sure he'll, he'll indulge you. Uh, but yeah, Rod and I had a really good conversation. Uh, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know about him. I was particularly interested in some of his South African experience because I have none and don't really know that much about it. I've, uh, as we talked about during the podcast, tasted some more interesting South African wines uh, more recently, kind of hit years ago and yeah, we're just in the mix, but now I feel like the last few times I've tasted some really good stuff. So he had some things to say about that. Uh, so yeah, check them out. Visit them on easthope.co.nz. Uh, and uh, thanks, Rod, for doing it, and enjoy. East Hope Family Wine Growers, and uh, yeah, you're you're. You said something earlier, and we can go back everything. Your all your face heads are on the front of the label. Yeah, um, we 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 invested a lot of time and money in in getting the right label, um, and the label designers came up with a concept that that surprised us initially, but it's it's essentially uh, our mug shots all over the label uh, in silhouette. And um, it really struck a chord with us. Um, obviously, our young boys also loved it. Yeah, of um, course. But it's it's all about conveying um, the fact that we're a family-owned business in a in a sea of wines out there in the world that are made by sort of faceless corporations, really. Yeah. Um, and it was important to us to get that sincerity of what our business is and what we're doing on our property um, across on our label. Yeah, I think it's um, really important to Hawks Bay at this stage as well that because we, we seem to have a, an interesting range of, you know, there's definitely some corporates here, but there's obviously some longstanding uh, family-owned operations uh, with some r- really cool history. And then there's some startups and some comers and goers and people that have been in and out. But uh, it can be tough and sort of muddy the waters a bit, uh, particularly for the overseas market if they're not as familiar with the region to know who's in what appellation, who's where. And we were talking earlier, you're, you're in your own little appellation down the road. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we searched for the right spot for about 10 years. And um, my wife, Emma, long suffering, um, had to endure possibly the worst driving husband in the world because I spent my entire life while driving around Hawke's Bay uh, with my neck um, twisted to the hills, <laughs> uh, going, well, that, is that a northeast-facing slope? Yeah, yeah. Can we jump that fence? Can we persuade that farmer to sell us a bit of land? Um, and it's taken a long time to fight the right spot. And we think we found the right spot, but it is um, quite a long way out of town. Um, people would call it Mariah Kākahō, but it's truly uh, Mangatahi. Mm-hmm. Um, so about 25 minutes uh, due west of Hastings. Um, but for people that know Hawke's Bay, um, the other side of the river from from Crownthorpe. From Crownthorpe, yeah. yeah, yeah. You face some 
some of the big vineyards out that way as well. Yeah. Um, and so you just mentioned 10 years. Uh, what were you doing 10 years ago? I was uh, 10 years. I arrived back in New Zealand after being in South Africa for about eight years. Okay. Uh, I didn't realize you were in South Africa that Yeah. Long. So I was making wine there. Um in amongst uh, vintages, you know, the requisite vintages in Burgundy and Italy and that sure. sort of thing along the way. Um, and my wife, Emma, who's also a Kiwi, Hawke's Bay born and bred as well, um, it's time to start nesting. Yes. So uh, time to come back to, to New Zealand, the best place to nest in the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so uh, I was lucky enough to become winemaker and eventually chief, chief winemaker at Craigie Range during that time. And spent some, you know, seven years there. But uh, be fair to say, I was never really quite well built for employment. Mm. Um, so I was always seeking that opportunity or that gap um, with enough time and energy left in the tank to actually build my own wine yeah. business on my yeah. own vineyard. Um, so, yeah, as I say, I was always looking out the window to try and find the right spot. I think a lot of, you know, there is like... There's a few different paths that you can take in the industry, but, um, you know, you probably started a lot younger than I did. I came to New Zealand when I was 31 and I already had it in my head that I wanted to do my own thing, but I was, you know, I want to, I obviously have to work for other people for, and I still do, um, or, and work with other people, but there is sort of that road where it's like, eventually you're going to become the corporate man and work, you know, big winemaker or assistant winemaker somewhere. And you just kind of sit nestled into this job, or eventually you're going to be the personality that, you know, is going to break out and do your own thing, or you're going to be the face of a brand or something like that. And if, uh, I I've seen it time and time again, where, you know, they say, yeah, great. I've been doing these vintages and I'm going back and forth and I love winemaking. And then eventually they're like, wait a minute, I don't have a home. I've got nothing to show for the work I've done, except for a lot of knowledge, which is great and a lot of great experience. But at some stage, you reach your life where you're like, "Hmm, what am I going to do now? Like, what, what's what's my imprint going to be? What what you know? What's why I've, I've been doing this for a passion. I want to you know put my name onto something. So, um, it's interesting you phrase it like that. You know that you're uh, you know not employable because you <laughs> your head's somewhere else I, I can totally relate to that um and it doesn't mean that you didn't do a great job when you were at craggy because i like those wines from when you were there i still do um but it's funny going back to that i was just thinking when i first came to hawks bay i i think i was at eit at the time and somebody said we were talking about different wineries and everything and somebody said uh oh you know uh Craggy's got Rod and, uh, you know, he's quite an asset for them and everything like that. And I just remember the cocky prick that I am thinking like, well, I'll see about that. You know, <laughs> who's this guy, you know? <laughs> and then, but I really, and I really, all those years, uh, I didn't really, I think I may have met you once or twice, but we really didn't catch up until we did a tasting at Trinity Hill like a year or two ago. And then I was like, oh yeah, this guy's hilarious. Like he's cool. <laughs> so, um, and, and it makes sense then that you say like, you know, personality wise, you wanted to do your thing. I, I get it. You know? Yeah. I think it's, it's personality. Um, I think impetus alone is not enough, you know, mm. cracking into this industry as a, as a sole trader ain't for the faint hearted. Um, you know, I got told when I first went into the industry, uh, by the famous Len Evans from Australia, so he said, you're going to be a winemaker? And I said, yeah. He says, you're going to live like a millionaire? 
I thought, whew, that sounds pretty good. He said, but you'll never actually be one. <laughs> <laughs> and I, there's a lot of truth in that. But, um, you know, having having the balls or the means to, to actually leap out and go on your own, um, it is a leap of faith. Um, and it's, it's it'd be, be fair now. to say... You know, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning sometimes shaking my head at myself. Um, but by come by, you know, 7 a.m. the next morning, I'm, I'm ready to go again. Yeah, yeah, you kind of, that's the thing, you wake up and you, you feel it. And I, I have to say, uh, having been to your property, and now I haven't been to your house since it's been finished, I would think waking up to that on most days when it's not kind of rainy and drizzly like it is today, but most days in Hawks Bay, you'd feel pretty inspired to... So yeah, look at this. Let's get into it, you know. Yeah, it's um we've only moved into the property properly a couple of months ago into the house and uh it's almost zen like each morning. Yeah. To be honest. We look out of the river, we're the only ones there, it sets the scene and you know where you're at, you're grounded, this is mm. your purpose, and yeah, it seemed to have that uh feeling every morning, so long may it last last. But you spent many years well, I guess I guess when you were at Craggy you were sort of Grounded doing your thing there, but I just wanted to go back to where was your first vintage at? Um, well, it goes back a long way. I started having holiday jobs at Cooks at Tikawata. Um, I don't know what that is. So. It's a very old winery in, in the Waikato region. Okay. Um, grand old name um, when there was quite a bit of viticulture in that area. So this goes back to the mid 80s. Mm. Um, and then had my heart set on being a winemaker from the age of 14 or 15. Mm. Um, and at that stage, you almost had to petition Roseworthy College to let you in because it was very much a, a club. Yeah. Um, yeah. Managed to get in there, um, balanced my work and social life perfectly, um, scraped through. Roseworthy, though, I do have to expose. You know, there's people listening all over the world here. Yeah. Right? That's in, they should know what Roseworthy is. It's in Australia. Yeah. So it's uh, now. They don't know what, of, I'll tell you, they don't know what Roseworthy is in, in America, I would say, you know, yeah. outside of maybe some people in California or something. Yeah. So Roseworthy College, um, uh, at the time in New Zealand, there was no degree offered in, in mm. wine science. Um, there was little dabblings by some of the polytechs, but nothing serious. So you had to go to Australia, Wagga or Roseworthy were the places to go. Roseworthy. Um, is now part of the Adelaide campus, so it's about you know an hour north of Adelaide, the campus itself. Mm-hmm. Um, classic agricultural college, um, but had a pretty good wine science degree, a very practical degree. You came out actually knowing how to actually run a winery. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was good, good grounding, lots of great contacts, obviously, and uh, from there, uh, I got a job at Pepper Tree Wines in Australia, making, being the winemaker. Straight out of university, <laughs> um, luckily had some great friends around me and winemakers, and it was very collegial, and uh, they helped me through a lot mm. of those early years. But after about two years, I came to the conclusion I was making pretty average, self-taught wines, um, and I was muddling through, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and had to seek a mentor, and at uh, that stage, uh, there was a lot happening in Marlborough, so I went to work for uh, Vintec, which is now Repara Vintners, which was basically where nearly all of Marlborough's mind yeah, yeah, was made at the time yeah. <laughs> um, and was run by John Belsham. And I sort of learned that uh, John Belsham slash Brian Crozer, very reductive, clean, uh, processed winemaking um, that was suited the pro- production down there perfectly, you know, Sauvignon Blanc-based mostly, Riesling, that sort of thing, yep. um, and came into contact with 30-odd winemakers that were making wine through that facility. So you got to see how lots of people did it did it. Um, unfortunately, I did it in the worst vintage ever in Marlborough <laughs> in 1995, which 
may not be a necessarily a bad thing in hindsight, but uh, it uh, makes 2017 look look um, yeah. quite sunny. Um, so that was that was useful. And then from uh, there, started doing some vintages overseas, um, Burgundy, Northern Italy. Um, Where at Northern Italy? I was working in Piemonte. Oh, um, it's a good spot. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> um, had you know more than my fair share of great tastings of Barolo and Barbaresco, and mm. that uh, love for those wines has never left. Um, There's a documentary coming. I saw that. That Barolo Boys one's coming to uh, Hawke's Bay. I saw that. I think we're going to have to go check that out. Yeah, I think that sounds like a boys' night out. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, it'd be tough for me not to bring the Italian wife with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> but she can hang. She can drive. She's a great driver. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, yeah, Pibante, awesome. So um, I think we might try to go there this winter. So I might hit you up for some contacts. Yeah, to, I've, got, I've got a couple. So, yeah. That's all it takes. I think they're know, still talking to me. Just to yeah. start, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh so burgundy uh and piedmonte and you were were you going back and forth then too yeah there's a little bit of that and i was dispersing that with you know work back here in australia um in new zealand and then um i was back here one summer sifting doing nothing and kim milne gave me a call to see if i could do a vintage in south africa um in one of the wineries he was consulting to that winery happened to be rustenburg estate which is a grand old name of south african wine so I went there, um, played a bit of rugby, worked the vintage. Kiwi, sure. A couple of yeah. weeks into it, uh, the um, you know the incumbent winemaker resigned, who had been there for twenty odd years, and uh, so I was sort of handed the ball. And uh, eight years later, I was still in South Africa. So you were you were at the same chateau, or was, it, would for the it first five years, first I was. Part, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then uh, consulted to them afterwards and um, set up my own consultancy business over there. I'm sure it's. I've had friends who've done vintages in South Africa. I've never been, but to give folks an idea, what would you say the? It's got to be really complex. I would think the the yeah the was, industry there. You know, uh, the industry industry is pretty easy to sum up. You know, they had quota systems. They had the KWV, which was the government owned um, winery that bought any excess that you produced and turned it into brandy. Okay. Um, it's that helps. <laughs> totally different setup to, to New Zealand, which is New Zealand was small entrepreneurs starting with a tin shed yep. um, and going for it. Um, there's, you know, there's a 350 year old industry yep. uh, with wineries that have been there that long. Um, you know, parts of, uh, South Africa are older than Bordeaux. Yeah. Um, so there's history. I flew over there knowing none of this. You know, I was just going to go over there and um, yeah, make an rugby. impression. Um, <laughs> but the country made a real impression on me. Um, their potential is phenomenal. The climate, the soils, uh, the resources, um, and absolutely incredible. And, you know, Stellenbosch now is like the Napa in terms of the style of investment that you've actually got there. Yeah. So nice. quite different, still very, very different to New Zealand. But um, I'd say, you know, when I got there, they were behind New Zealand and Australia in terms of innovation and what's happening. Uh, lots changed there in the last few years, and I'm taking my lead from some of the, the mavericks that are they're doing. Yeah, I've there. tasted some fantastic stuff out of there when I was in Philly, you know, running a, you know, modest wine list there. They were, you know... It was sort of a really good gauge of what was going on in the industry because you'd be like, all of a sudden, Pinot Gris would come in from Austria or Shiraz from Australia, and we were moving cases, yep. so we'd get all this stuff thrown our way. And obviously, California is doing their thing, and you know it's very European on that part of America as far as French, Italian, German history. 
So those wines are accepted, but uh, South Africa was sort of up and down, a little bit confusing. You get a good bottle, you get a bad bottle. and But in recent years, and some trips back to the States is which where I usually get to taste the most wine because it's such a great market. The South African stuff's just blown my mind. Like, yeah. wow, this is great. Amazing Shannon, you know, even Chardonnay's, Big Reds, you know. I haven't quite got my head around what makes them distinctly what they are. Um, the more I taste, the more I like. But uh, it's interesting you say that because I've, I've noticed it. Literally, it's pal- palatable, you know, yeah. that the wines are just keep seeming like, hmm, mm. what's going on there? Yeah, there's you a know? lot going on there. Yeah. yeah. But I, I never really studied or looked into that. You know, I know Stellenbosch, obviously, and I know a few regions. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that one and have friends work in places, but I've never really looked at it in depth and said, all right, I'm going to start trying to buy some more wines from there. But I probably should because it sounds like they're on the uptick, you know. Yeah. No, that's uh, there's a lot going on and it's happening at the extremities. I mean, the, the heart of South Africa is still Stellenbosch, but you've got the southern uh, cooler regions like Elgin and Cape Gullis that are probably producing more wines that we'd recognize as cool climate styles that uh, um, would sit alongside the best from New Zealand. Um, mm. uh, very similar sort of style. And then you go to the other end, the really dry Swatland, Paderberg, and that's where some real innovation is happening with the old bushfine vineyards that they've discovered and that sort of thing. They seem more open to blends. Yeah. Um, that's like some of what I've had in recent years yeah. is some amazing and red blends. It and seems like the their clientele is more open to it. Whereas I think in New Zealand, um, you know, the sort of the big seven single cultivars still drive most of the wine buying public's decisions, mm. um, which I find a, a little bit limiting here. Um, you want to go out on a limb and produce some interesting stuff, and then you go and have to find the six or seven people that will buy it in the country. Um, makes yeah. doing some of that more innovative stuff here, I think, uh, a bit of a challenge and always seems to be an add-on to what you do alongside some sort of uh, I more... I think that's why you got to export if you want to be a little more progressive. You oh, know. damn. No one yeah, told me that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, we were just talking about somebody in America drinking your wine. But uh, no, I think it's happening. Like, you know, there's, I was just talking to somebody a couple of days ago about how the Auckland wine market in the last eight years from when I got here, and if that's any gauge in the way like New York City would be or San Francisco would be to the US market, is that the trend is more adventurous. And I think a big part of it is the amount of imported wines that have come in, good imported wines that have come in from Europe and starting to be America now, which I've never saw when I first got here. It was yeah. literally like two producers, I think Ridge and just some one awful brand I would see in the supermarket. But um, you see younger people, a little more adventurous, knowing a little bit more about wine. So hopefully that translates to our wines being tried more oh, within I, the I country. Think you, I think yeah. you're right. And I think the rise of, you know, sommeliers having more yeah. power and uh, much more of a conduit of information from producer to consumer than what they were in the past. And I think New Zealand were, was a latecomer to that in terms of making that a real profession mm. and restaurants and businesses really um, knowing that they needed someone like that amongst their ranks. And I think that's driven a, a lot of change in New Zealand recently even as well. The, I was just thinking even the cocktail you know, scene is like helped the wine scene because yep. you might have some flash bartender who's like, he doesn't want to be outsmarted by not knowing enough about the wines yeah. as well. So they're just kind of all studying up on their WSETs and, you know, you just hear it more in the ether yeah. that, that there's a, a little more appreciation for all that stuff yeah. and different, and, different styles. And know? I think the thing is it's less critical appreciation is more aesthetic. Mm. And, uh, I think we've come out of an industry that, um, 
if it evaluates a wine, it looks for the fault first, and if it's fault free, it's a it's it's a good wine. And now we've moved to the point now where wines are essentially fault free, and aesthetics on top of that faultlessness is what people are looking for, and that's that's where the boundaries are now being pushed of of aesthetics, which is far more subjective. So there's a there's a larger bandwidth of of possibilities because of that. Yeah, and I, I think some of it is the industry, not in a uh, sort of mean way, but a, just a defensive way of saying like you can't do that or we shouldn't do that. And uh, I mean, I get it. For instance, you know, I've tasted some Cabernet made in Hawke's Bay in the '80s and even early '90s. That was just lime beans and green. And so we're we over. That was good. Yeah, we're overly <laughs> sensitive to the green thing, and we yeah. probably get caned on it more than Bordeaux does, or even Napa or somebody yeah. like that. And uh, you know, I made a Malbec in 2010 that I thought was in 20 and 2011 you can imagine from 2011 that definitely had some green notes to it took it to America and they were like wow that's really interesting and lifted yeah. and aromatic and that's unique and all that and if, if I would have tried to sell it around here or or talk to you know, oh that's I don't know about that that's you know so it's all perspective and all that and then I think you're you know the fact that you have the the family thing going on too uh with the new drinker and the up and coming appreciation of, of wine they want the story you know yeah. they want to know like they want authenticity they want uh that's a word that i keep harping on the last few weeks with some of the projects i'm involved in and they just want to know they just want to be honest like yeah. yeah you know this is the way we do this one and this is i buy the fruit from this guy and, I, and this person helps me do it and you know they're cool you yeah. know like, awesome all right great what's it cost right great you know like yeah. pretty straightforward rather than but I even think that is for the the corporate guys too. Is like, oh yeah, it's just big winery, and yeah, it's awesome, awesome value, great. Yeah, you know, I don't need to look into it anymore. But uh, you know, it's cheap and it's pretty darn good, and I can drink it on a Tuesday night or something. You know, yeah, there's time and a place for that. Yeah, that's for sure. yeah, yeah. So uh, and then sometimes, you know, what you always are looking for is that gem that over delivers and nobody seems to know about yet or anything. So hopefully that's. Uh, East Hope Family Wine Growers. Hope so, too. Uh, so what are you, uh, just for the, the folks out there, what are you producing? Because I know I have some of my favorites that you've made. But uh, um, So until our own vineyard matures, we've been buying in parcels. But where we do that, we manage the few rows ourselves. Um, so when I say uh, manage it, we do all the fruit thinning, um, lateral thinning, wings off, all that jazz we do ourselves. And when mm -hmm. I say we, my wife and I. Mm -hmm. um, so we're utilising parcels from various vineyards, but uh, the main thrust of it is the Skeetfield Vineyard Chardonnay. Um, we make a Tamuna Vineyard um, Pinot Noir from Martinborough. So we bring that fruit Where's up. the Skeetfield? Skeetfield's in Ohiti. Uh, so if yep. you are going from the Gimlet Gravels, go through Fern Hill and then head, head west, mm -hmm. first vineyard on the right. Um, Old Mendoza, um, uh, quite rich style. It because of Mendoza or the soil or it has tiny berries because of the you know inherent virus in, in Mendoza. It's quite heavy soils, but unirrigated, so always been dry farmed. That's good. Um, doesn't throw many bunches anymore. Um, and you know I don't know how to sum it up, but some years it could be quite uh, lean, mineral, steely, fresh. Um, and other years, you know, a peach, mm. peachy, um, but it always has a, a natural reductive sort of element to it, um, varying from each year. But, you know, if, you, if you're if shy of that sort of burnt match sort of thing and flint, 
um, our Chardonnay is probably not for not, you. Not for you. Yeah. Um, but it's something we um, like um, but wouldn't dare adulterate. Um, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, our winemaking is essentially um, grapes, yeast sometimes, not often, and sulfur. Mm. Um, and that's it. So we we just don't even look at tannins and enzymes and acids and fining agents and things yeah. like that. It's just, yeah, we just want to keep it as... And I think that comes back to the honesty part of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. the tricks. And yeah. what, um, so you said Chardonnay? Yeah, so the Chardonnay and the Pinot. Uh, the recent thrust of the brand that's made a little bit of noise for us is the Gamay. Yes, um, I know. And I, I have a, an employee who's very into your Gamay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's that's surprised us how um, the uptake of that wine and how much noise it's actually made for us. Um, and we we had vines on order from from River Sun to plant, and we're planting this year. So we thought we we're a few years off planting Gamay until a friend of ours mentioned that he th- he thought there was some Gamay on a vineyard near near to us. And I said, really? And we went and checked it out, and sure enough, it was. And the owners of this uh, particular patch had just been throwing it in with the rest of their reds because they thought no one wanted it. Yeah. And so we took over that in 20, uh, 2014 for the twenty fifteen vintage and. Uh, yeah, that's that's it's a fascinating little wine, um, and that interest in Gamay has really been kindled by the fact that um, you know I used to drink a lot of Burgundy, um, good Burgundy. Yeah, it's too expensive, and now you know we've got some good importers in New Zealand. You know, um, Maison Baron and um, Peter Maud that bring in some really really nice Beaujolais. I just got a nice little package from Maison Baron with the Beaujolais yeah. in there. So yeah, it's it's. It's kind of the way the I guess the industry works too. It's like, oh, we can't get it from there. Yeah. Now we're been outbid, and you know who can afford to drink, you know, fifty dollar Pinots, or if you're lucky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, even you know, Premier Crew, good Premier Crew Burgundy's now over, you know, a hundred dollars a bottle most of it. Yeah, and, especially uh, down here too. Yeah. So uh, you start looking for other places to fill that void for those dishes and restaurants do the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. they just can't pour it. So, but it does. Uh, bring up the idea that's like, damn, Hawks Bay does another good varietal really well. Yeah, know? although I think this one, you're right, um, Hawks Bay is a vast area with a big range of um, mesoclimates. And so our, our, our canvas is very blank. We can do a lot of things. Um, and that's, from a marketing point of view, a bit of an Achilles heel, but um, mm. I'd rather be in that position than totally. pigeonholed into only being able to do this and this. and uh, I certainly wouldn't have stayed here if, yeah. you know, and I didn't know a thing about Hawke's Bay. Yeah. Except for... Uh, and and climatically, you know, the reputation of Hawke's Bay, at least here and maybe the UK, has been made on Bordeaux Reds and latterly Syrah. Um, but I would argue that those wines, you need to be at the apex of production to make good, good wines out of those cultivars in Hawke's Bay. Mm. And they come from... Um, a very small subset of sites within the Greater Hawke's Bay that can do Bordeaux-style blends and Syrah well. The rest of Hawke's Bay is actually a bit cooler um, and uh, maybe a bit wetter. And I think that brings into, you know, all those uh, sort of middle um, varietals that ripen slightly earlier. But I put Merlot in that camp and I put Gamay, Chardonnay, obviously, but a whole heap of other stuff that we can do. Mm. Um, And I think that's just... Fantastic. Um, I've never pinned my hopes on the generic image of of the region selling my wine for me. So the fact that it's diverse and we don't have a perhaps a unified singular story, 
I don't see that as hampering at all to a, at least my individual business or your individual business going out and doing what it needs to do and selling itself. Yeah, I think for the long term, um, especially, I was just thinking about this, like if you, you know, we're never going to be Napa and we're not next to San Francisco uh, and we don't have like Bordeaux where there's, a, you know, this history there. So it's, you know, you could come as a tourist to Hawke's Bay and come five times and get you know, 10 different experiences, yeah. you know, you could have, you know, this time we hung out at Tijuana and did this and drank these Chardonnays yeah. and, you know, and then we went to, you know, we did the Gila Gravels thing or we did the Bridge Paw thing, you know, and, mm. and there's enough wine and different styles in there that, you know, I even think just between Bridge Paw and Gila Gravels, it's oh, like, yeah. you know, like you have these Bridge Paws, like just chocolate mocha, you know, really fleshy, Cabernet and, and Merlot and things. And then the gravels is like this angular, totally yep. different thing. And it's, you know, striking in another way. Mm. And so those are right next to each other. Yeah, exactly. Know, there's some vineyards like go across both, you yeah. know? Uh, so uh, that, that's probably a good thing for us in the long run, like you said. But even just as, a, you know, as, certainly as producers and the way I think the industry is going, I get it. But even just tourism, you know, like people just coming to hang out, like uh, it's, we were talking about my buddy Tom earlier who came here and he was just like, a couple comments were like, man, I tasted so many different kinds of wines there. Um, you know, he came down here to try to get his head on so he could help me sell a little bit more wine in New York. But he's like I'm almost a little more confused <laughs> <laughs> after yeah. I left. So he actually came back again last week and he's, he's starting to get it a little more now. Um, so that, you know, there's that challenge, but uh, I think it's, yeah, like it's a good place to explore and, and find different. And there are people like you and uh, it's a guy at Delaterre. Yep. They're like kind of stretching out and going into these different places. Obviously, the Southern Hawks Bay folks yep. or Central Hawks Bay uh, that are doing different things. And you're kind of pushing. Now we're pushing. I'd be interested to see people pushing up into the hillsides. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's people out in, you know, they say, what, the Tomata hills or whatever yeah. you know there's so there's all these little little areas and so i think it's great it's yeah, great it's certainly th- a good th- place to learn and drink wine <laughs> oh yeah we've always got that um i think you mate tom might have had a you know far easier time even five years ago let alone 10 um it was a very easy region to understand um you know pretty much dominated by medium to small uh, medium to large style wineries all producing versions of the same thing to be honest and it's it's really only been quite recently that we've seen this this step out. Um, and while guys in Wipro down south in central Otago are wearing sandals and got dreadlocks and yeah, making yeah, these yeah. wacky cool wines and having a great time, um, Hawke's Bay has been much more conservative um, stylistically and that sort of thing. But the, we've finally, I think, you know, the shackles have been loosened a little bit and uh, we're seeing some really, really cool innovative stuff happening and uh, people feeling less bound to what Hawke's Bay is meant to produce from a classical perspective. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm very, I'm very curious to see, you know, from uh, how that, and I don't think there'll be like any fights or anything like that, but it's just going to be kind of interesting to watch those dynamics between, as I've called it, the old guard and the new guard. And, uh, you know, there's that cool history there, but there's also, I know a, a few producers who just raise their eyebrow like, what? You're doing what? You know, yeah. like, what? Are we yeah, doing? I, th- I think every region's probably got got that. Yeah. Um, you know, we go back to South Africa, that's probably the oh, yeah. biggest example of that, of the, the grand yeah. old names producing their Bordeaux blends. And then you've got the wackos up north and south doing their, their cool thing. And I think, I think there's always room 
room for both. Um, so yeah, long may it continue. But it's interesting. I, I think I've heard on some of your previous podcasts. I, yeah, I'm the listener. Um, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> wow. Uh, um, you and a few other this people. old guard, yeah. new guard thing, and I I don't see the distinction so much because I was, I was thinking of all the older winemakers in Hawke's Bay, and they're pretty much. 45 to 50. Um, and I'd say they're probably just hitting their straps, actually, most of them. Um, and I'd take. Uh, no, I think, I think some of, I think you're right in that uh, the winemakers are. It's that the, uh, the owners are probably, I think there's a few different levels. Oh, I think that's levels. an important distinction. And, and, yeah. and, and I think that uh, there is a, a distinction on who owns the brand and who's behind the brand. Uh, whereas, I think they're, like you said, maybe there was pretty easy 10, 15, 20, even 20 years ago that it was like either this corporation or these people have owned this for a long time, or there's somebody with a boatload of money who comes in and they're just going to buy this vineyard and get the wines made and do that. Whereas, uh, I think people of, you know, and it's a, it's a bit of a jab. I'm just kind of joking around when I say the new guard, because it's not like we're going to like take over, (laughs) you know, but, uh, I think that the next sort of winemakers and these brands that are coming up uh, are people that actually like grew up making wine, you know, that came at it from this passion of like, I don't own anything yet. I'm just working for these other people. And, but I have these ideas and I want to try this different thing. Yeah. Uh, And some of the different thing might just be small production of what you've has already been done in the past of classic styles. uh, But, you know, really premium. And, uh, and so, even some of the small wineries uh, that have been established uh, in the last 20 years, I found, in my experience, that they're just a guy who was a businessman who came out and said, yep, I'm going to invest in a winery and do that, where I think there's a distinction in that sense. Now, granted, the other comment that Tom made when he was here uh, that I thought was just great and, and I obviously appreciate but take for granted is that he said, man, nobody were di- nobody's dicks. Like nobody was fighting amongst each other. Everybody was like, yeah, come on in, have a tasting. You know, the best example is that we showed up to Trinity the one day and you and Matt from Clearview and Warren were up there and Damien and they, you know, it was 20, 30 Syrahs open and they, everybody's inviting. And he, he was commenting, he's been to other wine regions, including uh, places in upstate New York where he was just like, you know, they're always talking behind each other's back and this guy, I don't know, think he's doing this or, and I just don't see that around here. You know, as everybody's, I could call almost anybody I wanted to and be like, Hey man, uh, I'm in trouble. I need to get this brought from here to there. And, or, you know, you, you had, was it a few months ago, you got a flat tire yeah. and <laughs> to pull into pair too. Like you didn't think twice about doing that. You know, yeah, what no, I mean? no. and, and believe it or not in some regions, uh, that's rare or that isn't, you don't feel, oh, I don't want to talk to that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think we're, I think that's, I think that's part of New Zealand's psyche a little bit, maybe too lazy to be angry. You yeah. know, it's just, a, <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of effort to, yeah, to have yeah. angst. Um, yeah. and so I think that's just part of the, the national psyche for the most part. Mm. Um, just, it's easy to get along. It's, yeah. Uh, and I think there's, you know, the seclusion and the being out in the country, yeah. that's definitely part of the national psyche of like, people are tough. Yeah. You know, you get through some winter, you know, and, and, uh, we don't have a lot of insulation and, <laughs> you know, uh, this guy needs help with some firewood. All right, we'll go help him chop it up. Yeah. Or, you know, that old school, uh, which is still, you still need firewood. Here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, that sort of thought, you know, people are, are, are there for each other when it, when it really counts. So, uh, that's, 
I think that definitely translates to the industry around here. Yep, and so definitely does. it's probably something that we need to, uh, I don't want to separate, you know what I mean? But I do like to stir up the pot a little bit and make, you know, uh, make fun of each other a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I still think that distinction, um, I'll still take you to task on it. I think even though it's a, it's a stir up to stimulate some, some conversation, but I, I see some of the most innovative things happening. I look, you know, Trinity Hill across totally, the road here. Totally. Um, you know, John Hancock and Warren, we've been innovating for the last 25 years there with their cultivars and uh, what they've gone out and done. I mean, they're making tawny ports, for goodness sake. Yeah, I know. And beer. Uh, and beer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Roan, white Roan varietal blends. And, um, you know, I think he's at the um, city, at the apex of sort of Chardonnay remodernization um, in, in Hawke's Bay and that sort of thing. So, you know, and he... Warren won't mind me telling him, saying this. He, he's an old timer man, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, he's still innovating. I think every time I have a glass of yeah, wine with him, he's uh, he's thinking about the next thing and how he can improve upon what he's doing. And uh, I can't wait to sit down and talk to him. And I'm not sure where to start. You know? Yeah, but exactly. He's one of the guys who, when I, I mean, literally the first weekend I was here, I met him at the, uh, it was the old Harvest Hawks Bay festival they used to do. Yeah. And uh, I was just with a guy who brought me there. I think he was chasing some girl. And uh, I just hung out and drank and watched a band and then helped clean up at the end. And he's just generous and nice. And uh, all through the years, he's always just been like, so what's going on with Decibel? Yeah, cool, cool. You know, he's yeah. just like genuine. And, and uh, But then on top of that, you know, one of the best winemakers I've ever met. Yeah, tasted, exactly. You know? And I mean, Trinity Hill's like a halfway house for... It know, is. <laughs> For lost lost winemakers, we yeah. call it a lost lamb tent in New Zealand. And uh, if you're ever at a loss, nothing to do, pop in there um, mid afternoon, and you'll get a great tasting glass of wine and shoot the banter with them and feel part of the furniture. And then yeah, oh, it um, shows too. I mean, that, uh, that's that place is. I've always commented. I think their tasting room is just leaps and bounds above everybody else's because it's just the vibe of the people that work there. They yeah. always seem to have nice people, and if you go in there, they just they have the right balance of being like getting you a nice glass of wine, but not on top of you. Yeah. Like, you know, just, yeah. oh, this is the next one and da, 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 you yeah. know, and, being and it's not even easy balance to, it's not no. because you want to be cool and serious about it, but you also yeah. don't want to be like right on top of everybody yeah. all the time. And, uh, it's just, I think those type of things start at the top, you know, and it's, it, you know, if people feel pressured in the wrong way, they're just going to be like, yeah, well, uh, we really got to sell and blah, 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 you know, yeah. and, and I mean, the result is they actually do sell a lot of wine. So, mm. And they're ma- and it's because they're making interesting stuff too. So I love that white blend they did. But uh, speaking of whites, you haven't finished telling me all about your wines you make. So Pinot oh, yeah. Gris, you don't you making as well? Uh, we we made a Pinot Gris one year, which was incredibly successful, which is why we had to bin it um, because it it really did um, monopolize our sales, and <laughs> uh, it did an amazing job of opening the door for our brand into great restaurants in Wellington and Auckland and elsewhere. Um, but we could see what it was doing. Yeah. And uh, it was a slightly lower price point. And I, I've I've been in this game long enough to see that slide happen with um, small wineries mm-hmm. that get encouraged by their distributor or have an opportunity to make a cheaper wine or something that they didn't originally want to do. And it's a slippery slope. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll suddenly get carried away into the second label that drives your brand or a cultivar that you had ne- had never had great interest in driving your brand. Um, and so, yeah, that I, 
I've been through it with so many other wineries um, where it yeah. took the eye off the ball. Then and so we had one great successful year with it. And much to our distributors' disappointment, we said, no, nah, nah, that's a good that move. Anymore. We were just talking about, I was talking about that with Yvonne last week, even though we're not doing quite this in real time, but uh, we we're talking about the Pinot Gris uh, confusion out there and uh, stylistically. But anyway, I like that one. You were. You did hit the mark with it. I could see why it was successful, but yeah, it was good wine, and it's a Pinot Gris we actually enjoyed drinking and and mm. and selling. Um, I, I've, you know, I've had some amazing Pinot Gris from you know here and from um, Alsace that really knock my socks off. Mm. Um, I take it. I think it takes, you know, almost that Cabernet viticultural discipline in the vineyard on Pinot Gris to get that quality, and. For some reason, you just don't get rewarded with that in the marketplace with no, bottle price. So no. you end up making a great wine that rubs your ego, but certainly won't um, pay the expenses. Mm. And uh, so we said Gamay. Gamay, yeah. Um, Chardonnay, Pinot, Chardonnay. and Syrah is the other. Syrah. Yeah. Yeah. Heard new, of that? New site, Syrah, or your uh, site? No, currently the one we've got at the moment is from Mary Road in the Gimlet Gravels. The 2015 is the new release. Mm-hmm. Um, we're... A little bit suspect about the 2017 was the first crop off our own vineyard. 2017, as you know, was an interesting Shh, vintage. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. It's an interesting <laughs> vintage. Um, we're not sure we're going to bottle that under East Oak Family Wine Growers yet, but I mean, we only just pressed it off and put it to barrel, so it might be. Uh, I think uh, Syrah does surprise you, but you're right. There, it can be tough to have a a drop off stylistically. It might be a nice yeah wine to drink, but if it lacks intensity or something like that, you're right that it's. And we all know that 2018 is going to be incredible. It's amazing. I can feel it right now. I can feel it today. You can see it in the vines that are about to be pruned. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's the main thrust, but we have planted Cabernet Franc on the vineyard as well. Oh, cool. And we'll look to do – we've planted that in bush vine formation. Cool. Um, And part of that reasoning was, you know, we established some vineyard in the conventional way with those, you know, tall things, the posts and – all the wire, and I walked out of the vin one hectare. It's twenty eight kilometers of wire. Um, the drip lines, the posts. I was like, all that infrastructure just to hold a vine up off the ground. And uh, this comes back to my South African contacts again um, and experience that we made some great wines off off bush vine there. Um, so we're going to give it a crack here. We've planted it in a grid formation, uh, two point five meter spacing in both directions so that we can actually cultivate in both directions so forget the fact that they're actually in, in, in rows. rows yeah yeah and even with this young vineyard now in that format it's a totally different feeling you can walk through your vineyard in any direction in you any want. Direction, yeah, yeah um it's it's and you can cultivate uh, right up to the vine trunk uh, without specialized equipment you know just the the rototiller on the back of your tractor and you can so it solves that um the greatest hurdle to becoming organic, which is in New Zealand, is weed control. Um, it gets around that relatively easily, um, and that's part of the, the reasoning. But also just the Wait, how does it get around that? Sorry, I didn't. Well, yeah. I think um, you know, within rows and conventional plantings, you need some quite specialised turnisole equipment or mowing oh, equipment to yeah, go yeah, totally. in between vines within row. And I think you know a lot of the modern equipment does a, a pretty good job, but not perfect mm. um and this you know you can you can go right up to the vine trunk on these if you establish a, you know a bit of a trunk um 
before you goblet it out. Um, and it, it gets around that. It's uh, yeah, It just feels right. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I can see. So yeah. the thing against us, if it doesn't work, is New Zealand's vigour um, some years. Um, but we, I think we catalyse our vigour unnecessarily in New Zealand with um, unneeded irrigation um, uh, draconian weed control yes, sometimes yes, uh, all yeah. that sort of thing just propagates vine vigor rather than ripening and so I think you know we've got tools in our armory just to just to choke the vine and get almost a bonsai effect happening on the on the vine yeah I was just thinking you should talk I don't know if you're heading to California anytime soon for your sales but uh, uh, I'll be there on the 17th or 18th of June oh, yeah. look at that yeah. uh, I put you in touch with a guy who's been on the podcast who's a buddy um I haven't talked to him in a while, uh, but this guy, Tegan Pasalacqua, he's a winemaker at Turley. Cool name. Yeah, awesome name, right? <laughs> but he was at Craggy years ago. He won the scholarship probably be- right before you got there. So he was when Doug was there. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, and it's just a super interesting guy, really smart, really passionate. I mean, like, he's the guy you want to go out to dinner with in Napa because he's like he, him and the, uh, the chef friend of mine who I know, Tegan, through, you know, they know the guy the psalm they know the chef and they know you know what, what's open tonight what what can you open you know and and they know all the good the good stuff at all the good restaurants and everything but he is uh i think even his twitter handle on instagram is like own rooted so he's found these old old vineyards in california now granted they don't have uh a similar climate as far as vigor and things like that you know but uh, it does a lot of bush vine stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, I just think a really interesting, passionate guy. Who, uh, yeah, he would probably have some some insight, and just be cool to meet him. He's a great guy. Um, but I, I did I, do I need a, to meet the guy that can help me with bird control in my bush oh, Well, so. that's that is another thing that uh, visitors say here when they come uh, from America is they just can't believe the birds in the morning that they hear when they're, when they're here. And I said, yeah, it's a unique place for that. And, and you got to, you know, where I grew up around Philadelphia and New Jersey and stuff, it's dense. There are trees. Like people think, you know, okay, you kind of live near the city or it's, it's a heavily, it's humid there. So there's a lot of growth, but the birds, it's just, it's nothing like it is here. You know what I mean? It's a phenomenon here. Just, you know, clouds of starlings uh, can come and decimate a vineyard in a day. Yeah. Um, I, I think New Zealand has some unique hurdles. Um, or Hawke's Bay, I think, you know, um, late summer rain is always an issue. We have to dodge sort of mid, mid-March. mid Oh, yeah, every year I've it. been here. Um, and birds and frost. And mm. those, are, those are things that um, are major, major challenges to viticulture here. Mm. Um, if we didn't have those, you know, it'd be... <laughs> But having said that, every region has its own unique sort of set of problems. But, uh, yeah, I think the positives definitely outweigh. But the, I've even the greatest vintages we've had here, like thirteen and fourteen, both had rain in yeah. March. You yeah, know? and o- at least always the threat of it. Yeah, the um, forcing the hand, yeah, if you will. Yeah, you know? um, and my, you know, global warming. Um, I think the risk to Hawkes Bay is. Um, more of that subtropical drift mm. in some years. Um, so, yeah, we've got to be mindful of that. Yeah, what a strange year we had this year where driest, windiest, hottest yeah. summer I've been here. It was amazing out this way. I mean, I didn't have to mow the lawn once all summer. It was <laughs> just dry. Yeah. I grew up on a vineyard here in Hawke's Bay. Um, my mum 
remarried um, quite a large grape grower here so and grew up on that vineyard through the 80s and it was just a run of just exceptional vintages and you know summers were always hot and it never mm. rained and so I thought that was the uh, you know the the region I was investing in but yeah. uh, it goes in cycles um, but we do get one of these um, challenging vintages once every five or six years and we just have to you have to plug that into your spreadsheet you do <laughs> you do you do well cool man I think uh, we just blew through a good 45 or so maybe an hour, close to, uh, not quite an hour but um, I do want to plug all your stuff before we go. The website is yeah, East Top East Hope Co NZ. So E A S T H O P E. Twitter just, handles and I don't Twitter. do Twitter, but Instagram uh, you're on. Yeah. Instagram um, is just at Rod East Hope. Yeah. Um, and I think my wife's got one at East Hope Wine Growers as yep. well. Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, and can they come out for a private? Yeah, we team? we're not open to the public. Just drive in, but certainly just give us a call or contact us through the um, website where. Always looking for an excuse not to do real work for a couple of hours. Yeah. So, guests most welcome. And reach out if you're in California. Rod will come visit you and bring you his wines. And, Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> swap, which, by the way, I think I need to do some swapping with you. Sounds well. good to me. I'm in. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Okay, there you go, Rod Eastope. Cool dude. Really, really intelligent and uh, interesting guy. I thought it was pretty cool that uh, he was one of the first people I didn't have to say, get up on the microphone. He's got a voice that carries that guy, man. Really cool. Thank you, Rod. Uh, again, check them out at easthope.co.nz. Uh, and they're all, all over Instagram. Great property. Go down and check out those amazing wines he's making there. Uh, again, check out the Falk events. There's a few left. I really suggest be, being a part of that. Uh, it's cold this time of year in Hawks Bay. Get out and do something, man. We're having frost in the morning. We're not used to this. You know, we like sunny, warm Hawks Bay. But, uh, yeah, it's been a bit frosty, and, you know, it can so easily just get hunkered in and not get out and do anything here in uh, country living that we have here in Hawks Bay. So get out and do something. There's tons of events. Uh, super celebration coming up this saturday the 17th and then next friday and saturday lunches uh with pippi at home by the fire so check those out on the falk website also wanted to mention uh i've been asked to do the grape debate this year which should be really fun it's some boutique producers such as myself and rod and tony bish who i'm going to have on the podcast next week uh, up against some of the big dogs, some of the big corporate wineries. Should be pretty fun. It's all for charity. Uh, we're going to debate, I don't know, who's cooler, I guess. I have no idea. Um, we're going to debate all this stuff. It's all for charity for uh, the low corporation helicopters, which, trust me, if you live in New Zealand, is a very, very important thing. We're far away from major roads. If somebody has a big accident or a big problem, you need those helicopters. So, Check that out. I think the tickets are sold out, but I did hear, uh, don't tell them I told you, but I did hear they're going to hold some aside and they might release a few more. It's going to be a Tiawa winery and it's going to be hilarious. I've heard about, they've done it, I think it's the third or fourth time they've done it and uh, it just seems like it's going to be a blast. So uh, big dinner, 
should be really fun. Hope, hope you, some of you guys can make it and we see some familiar faces there. Uh, yeah, that's just about it. Again, decibelwines.com. We're now shipping to the UK, which is cool. And, of course, the U.S. and New Zealand, Australia. Check it out. Some new releases. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers.